This is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Pope Francis says in Evangelii Gaudium that no one can demand that religion be relegated to the inner sanctum of personal life. In other words, faith is not merely private, it's public. One challenge for religious freedom in this country seems to be that there are some people who think that religion should be a strictly private matter. We're going to talk about a couple of concrete ways this trend has played out recently. And we're joined by Monse Alvarado. Monse serves as executive director at Beckett Law, a nonprofit law firm that promotes religious liberty for all. She was recently profiled in a great Wall Street Journal article titled, God's ACLU Seeks Freedom for the Faithful. So if you haven't checked that out, I encourage you to. Monse, we're very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who follow religious liberty issues, particularly Catholics, I think that the line of questioning in the Amy Barrett nomination is still lingering in our minds. A judicial nominee, Professor Barrett, was questioned by senators about her Catholicism in a way that suggested that her faith would prevent her from serving as a fair judge. Monse, what was your reaction when you first saw this distinguished professor being asked about whether or not she's an Orthodox Catholic? Well, first, as a Catholic, I was more than appalled. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, But as a Beckett team member, I immediately thought of the discussions that we've had internally about Article 6 in our Constitution and the fact that we don't have religious tests in this country. So could you just back up for one sec? So I want to try to understand judicial nominee. So in other words, this is a a federal court of which there are, what, nine, ten around the country. And the Supreme Court, or I'm sorry, excuse me, the senators are usually the ones who um, bring them in, ask them questions before they vote whether to confirm them to these positions. Is that right? That's right. And in that vote, they have to be very careful not to apply religious tests as we've had in our country's history before, particularly with the anti-Catholic bigotry bigotry that we've seen. There are different parts of uh, our state constitutions that have provisions like Blaine Amendments that are specifically based on anti-Catholic history. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to see with the votes if this really shows through, if this line of questioning is going to affect the votes that these senators put in. And if Amy isn't confirmed, there will truly be a a question to be asked of whether these senators are upholding their oath to protect and defend the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, but uh, I mean, the whole thing struck me as odd because as I understand it, Professor Barrett actually argues for the opposite position of what her inquisitors are accusing her of. She says, that judges with strong moral convictions or religious convictions about a particular issue might need to recuse themselves, as I understand. That's that's what she's arguing in the article that was in question. Uh, so, I mean, if anything, her argument might trouble those people, especially in the Catholic world. There are some who, who want judges to interpret the law in light of the natural law. I mean, what do you think is going on? Why, what do you think is going on here? Why do you think uh, the senators would question her in this way? 
I'm, I'm not really sure because it's entirely un-American to have this line of questioning. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense unless you're looking for something very specific. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and I wonder, you know, you got to figure to think to some extent, I mean, uh, Roe versus Wade is kind of what's in the background, or that's sort of what I think they're trying to suss out, that they want to see if she's ensure that she's going to uphold it. I, I, th- I think that's, um, you know, that's what John Garvey said in his... Uh, follow-up article to the, uh, or his article following up on the whole thing. Now, uh, you know, in his statement on on this whole topic, uh, Archbishop Laurie asked this question, were the comments of the senators meant as a warning shot to future law students and attorneys that they should never discuss their faith in a public forum if they have aspirations to serve in the federal judiciary? I think Archbishop Laurie's question gets at something important. There seems to be an idea at work among a growing segment of our country that people of faith should keep their faith private if they're going to serve our public. Is this a trend that just, you know, kind of like looking at the broader, what the cultural issues involved in these sorts of things, is this a trend that you see as well? Definitely. I think that we've seen this on college campuses. We've seen this, um, in not just affecting the students, but in academia, affecting the professors and in the elite media. Um, just this morning, there was an opinion editorial by Arthur Brooks in the New York Times that discussed the fact that conservative professors don't have a path, uh, a career path on college campuses. And he cited a great project by an NYU professor named Jonathan Haidt called the Heterodox Academy, which mm-hmm. seeks to promote viewpoint diversity on campus. So having professors of both sides supporting each other and having these discussions mm-hmm. and really um, being committed to civil discourse. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So let me just go back to the, um, in what capacity would uh, Professor Garrett, right? Is that her name? Uh, Barrett. Barrett. Barrett, Barrett mm-hmm. excuse me. So in what capacity would Professor Barrett's Catholic faith come up. It's not so much, I mean, it's it's the beliefs of the faith and how that would play out in affecting her decision that they say that they're questioning, right? It's not necessarily um, her her the decisions that she would be making, but what they're trying to get at is that they're trying to imply that somehow this would affect her from, keep her from doing her job in a fair uh, and impartial way. Is that right? I I believe so, but what's so odd to me is looking at the composition of the current Supreme Court and um, even just the late Justice Scalia, such a phenomenal example of upholding the Constitution, who do take their faith seriously. And if we look at other people in office right now, we do have members of Congress, Senate, former presidents who were strong Catholics, or even if you look at um, the ambassador to uh, uh, religious freedom, Rabbi Saperstein. You have people of great faith who are able to do phenomenal work for our country, and that's really what our Constitution was founded on. That's mm-hmm. that's the principle that these, again, these senators have decided that they are going to protect and defend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I wonder about is just, uh, this is a question that came up recently at, a, at an event I was at at Brookings. Uh, it was just this, how did we get here? Uh, William Galston was noting that uh, that the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, was passed nearly unanimously by Congress, and it was signed by President Clinton with great fanfare. He describes it. He Galston described it as like one of the great days of his life to like see it on the South Lawn. Uh, 
all these people of different faiths celebrating this um, piece of legislation that was signed. Uh, that was only about 24 years ago that that was signed. Now people think that RIFRA is too indulgent to people of faith, and we see this push to marginalize faith and make it a strictly private matter, like we're saying. I mean, uh, I mean, what do you what do you think has happened? Like, how did we get to this point? Beckett works really closely with RIFRA. That's one of our the the foundation of some of our landmark cases, our Hobby Lobby case, even the mm -hmm. Little Sisters of the Poor case, and also a case defending a Muslim prisoner, mm -hmm. uh, defending Native American rights to hold their to keep and use eagle feathers mm -hmm. um, when they were being persecuted by the federal government. It's not a lie that these are religious minorities that benefit from this law. It's a mm -hmm. very important law that allows us to create a balancing test between government interests and the important religious traditions that we participate in in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. It's our right to have full citizenship and not second-class citizenship as religious actors. Right. And with our traditions, we know that Christianity is a, a very strong, uh, very, very strong push in our society, but we also have a large number of religious minorities that deserve to be protected. Mm -hmm. I think we've lost sight of where we come from as people. We've lost sight of who we are are we people who have our eyes fixed on the horizon and focused on the transcendent, or do our rights really just come from the government? Mm -hmm. And are we servants to a hierarchy? Yeah, yeah. We came running from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things you 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 bringing up, um, the, the way you describe that in terms of this kind of, you know, having a transcendent horizon. I mean, one of the things that it makes me think of is that I, I noticed that many of you who work at Beckett. Are, um, tend to be people of faith. Maybe everyone is, I'm not for sure, but many of you are very vocal about your faith, but people of many different faiths work there and come from there. And, um, and yet you have a track record, as you mentioned, some of your cases are fighting for religious freedom for all different religious groups. Um, it's not just kind of like a self-interest sort of thing, that it's, it's for all people. And I kind of wonder if like, I mean, you, for example, you're a Catholic, uh, you know, I think you understand the importance of religious freedom for even your Muslim and your Jewish and Baha'i neighbors uh, precisely because of your faith, not in spite of it. And it seems to me that this kind of desire to create a neutral secular space by making religion private ends up, it just imposes another kind of dogma that marginalizes people of faith. I mean, do you think it's fair to say, kind of what, and kind of going along with what you were just saying, that people in whom the dogma lives loudly uh, are often some of the best allies to people of other faiths? And I mean, can you say a little bit more of how you've seen that play out in, in your work? Sure. I think there are three things here. People who, with, with whom the dogma lives loudly within them, um, think of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that because he woke up one day and thought that was a good idea. He did it because he was mo motivated by his deep faith and deep understanding of the dignity of the individual. Um, I could point to one area, a case that we won um, unanimously in 2009 called Hosanna Tabor that protects churches from having governments tell them who their leadership should be. Mm -hmm. uh, this manifested itself in, the, in a school that wanted to be able to choose its own leadership. And um, we won that unanimously and Justices Kagan and Alito concurred um, and together said that religion is that critical buffer between the state and the individual. And that is what we've forgotten. 
-hmm. We've forgotten that our rights don't come from the government, so the government can't take them away. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about people of faith, people of very strong faith being the best allies and the best advocates for other religions, it's not because they've watered down their principles. It's because they believe their believe in their faith so strongly and it's such an important part of their lives that they want to give that opportunity to someone else as well. Mm -hmm. That understanding that it's not, religious liberty isn't about who God is, it's about who we are and who we deserve to be as citizens in our society. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was just thinking, so if I wanted to take advantage of religious liberty, aren't there, are there people out there claiming, well, my faith says this and this, my faith says I can, you know, steal that grocery cart and let my kid ride around the parking lot in it, you know? I mean, to some extent, though, what, how, how as a society are we defining religion or is that being defined or who's defining it? I mean, those are some of the questions running around in my head. For sure. I mean, that's a great, that's a great example. Um, there's something that, speaks to the, the beauty of the way that we've set up our legal system and one aspect of that is compelling government interests. So part of that balancing test that I was talking about with religious liberty is where do, do the interests of the states in terms of safety, public safety, things like people stealing from each other or creating religions um, that have a self-interest in mind. Um, that is something that is balanced through our legal system and of course there are criminal penalties associated with stealing, et cetera. But where that, where the government cannot prove that it has an interest in infringing on your individual liberty, it shouldn't be allowed to. And that's where religious liberty comes in and why it's so important. I mean, the way, you know, I'm glad you said that and that this came up because I think one of the most frustrating things about doing this sort of work is you, the misunderstanding of Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's sometimes portrayed as if it always means that the religious litigant is going to win, which it, they almost never do. I mean, no. I mean, this is the thing is like it or they often it, it's not like a clear cut thing. It just means that the government has to prove that it has a compelling interest um, or that it's that it's furthering that interest using the um, least restrictive means. Um, and that it's imposing a substantial burden. It's got that you've got those prongs, but it doesn't necessarily mean like, some people seem to take it as like, oh, well, this just gives religion license to do whatever they want. And that's just not, that's not true. I mean, that's really a kind of a, I mean, it's really sad that we can't like have this kind of discussion with sort of the right understanding of, of what, the what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act actually does. Right, I, I agree with that, but I would also say that it goes back to um, our understanding of the role of religion in general mm -hmm. and our duty to our government versus our duty to individual rights and, our, and who we are as people. Mm -hmm. um, Beckett, when it was founded in 1994, was founded on the principles of Dignitatis Humanae, which is the um, Vatican II document on religious liberty. And it discusses exactly what the role of government is, but also what our role as Catholics and how we talk to other people about their religion really is, mm -hmm. and makes those divisions where you do have, Archbishop Chaffieu has a wonderful book called Render Unto Caesar. You do have duties to your society and to the other people living within it, but you also have to protect your forum internum. You have to protect what's in your heart and what's in your mind mm -hmm. and have a right to express it and to um, to follow that journey to wherever it leads you. Mm -hmm. 
I think when I hear the words, I was actually just talking to my husband about this on the way to work this morning. When I hear duty and obligation, I think, oh my gosh, it could be a full-time job just keeping up with all the decisions and things that my congressional representative and my senators are voting on. Like, oh my goodness. So it's just, it can be overwhelming with all the things playing out. So I'm just, you know, just trying to figure out like, okay, what can I conceivably do in a day? You know, I always try to vote. I always try to keep up on the issues, but I think it can be a challenge for people to not feel overwhelmed by everything that they feel like they should do to make, to make their voices heard. That's a tough question <laughs> because um, I could sit here and tell you that getting up to work at Beckett every day is the way that that manifests itself in in my life. I've managed to choose an issue and go for it with all of my strength and all of my heart. Um, and that kind of felt like my calling. So I would say discerning, keeping up with the information is important, but discerning where you're being called to, to focus um, and then putting your energy into staying, staying up on that issue. Yeah. Uh. I want to actually turn to another, a different issue, or a slightly different issue. Um, but this involves uh, your work at Beckett even more explicitly than, than the whole Barrett nomination. And that's this, uh, the issue of disaster relief uh, for the communities affected by the recent hurricanes. Uh, Beckett is representing three houses of worship, it's right, three? Yes, mm -hmm. three. That are suing the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, because FEMA currently excludes houses of worship from disaster relief grants. Can you give us a sense of what's going on here? Sure, um, and this goes back to what you were saying about the balancing tests and all. How, how do we figure out where religion plays in this? And these three churches who serve as places where disaster relief actually happens, FEMA uses them as staging grounds. They come in and provide meals, shelter, supplies to people through these buildings and through these communities and networks, they are just asking for a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. They don't automatically receive a grant when they apply. They actually haven't applied anymore because they've been denied so many mm -hmm. times. Um, they are just asking to be considered like everyone else, like the garden club, like the aquarium, like all of these uh, parts of your community that are so important and give services to your community, mm -hmm. they want to seat at the table to be considered for this money for this reimbursement. I just want to emphasize that because this was something I just learned uh, today that what you just said that that they that the churches serve as the staging grounds for FEMA operations sometimes. <laughs> of that, course like, they do. Yes. Of course they do. They're handing out water. Where do you go? And this is particularly for me, I lived in Miami for many years, went through many hurricanes and Where's the first place you go for instructions? We would go to our church mm -hmm. and our pastor would tell us, okay, the evacuation happens here. These are our routes. This is where you can go and get supplies. If you don't have a place that's safe, come to the sanctuary and I will house you here. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I just think that that is uh, remarkable that, that, that you would have like a, a, an agent, a, a government agency say like, we're going to use these places because we recognize how important they are. So we're going to use them as our staging grounds and then turn around and say, but we're not going to give you, you we're not going to help with the disaster relief for you because, because, <laughs> because your you're status. religious. Yes. Yeah, that's status mm -hmm. discrimination. So exactly. this is all coming from this opportunity for them to come in and file um, with us, obviously, to, to sue for this relief, but also at the same time 
to make this case. It comes out of the Trinity Lutheran case that was won at the Supreme Court uh, this this past term, mm -hmm. where they said that the government cannot discriminate in these programs based on the status of these mm -hmm. organizations. So this is a program that is for all nonprofits. If you're a 501c3, you get to apply for this relief. Churches are 501c3s, just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. But because they're religious, they don't get to apply. Well, and it just speaks to how people of faith are usually the ones that, uh, from in all different faiths, are usually the ones where their faith overflows into concrete actions to help their neighbors. So that's just, that's it's egregious. When wow. the government leaves, when FEMA is done, and they count for all of their people, and they have done what it is that they have their budgets to do, the churches are still there. Mm -hmm. Those communities are being served by those people motivated by their faith to help get them off the ground and piece their homes back together. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think it does get to this whole religion is private idea again, because uh, when you look at when this was discussed after Superstorm Superstorm Sandy, this was an issue then too. Uh, and so, if you read kind of like the the letters to Congress and everything from from those groups who support the current policy. Um, groups like the ACLU and Americans United for Separation of Church and State, they're going to say things like, you know, these entities that uh, only entities that serve the whole public, like the community centers, the zoos, the museums, they're the only ones that should be eligible for these grants, but that the churches, the mosques, the synagogues, um, that they shouldn't because they only serve their own, I guess the idea is they only serve their own uh, their like own the members. idea, right? Right, right. Yeah, and, and yeah so, that's, and that's not true, right? <laughs> well, that's, that, yeah, that's the absurd thing about it in this particular context is that these, it, it, when the disaster hits, these the houses of worship actually open up to everybody, and they are, they're public institutions. They're a different kind of public institution, certainly, but they they do are they're serving the public in a way. Um, I mean. I, I still don't, it's it's in some ways hard for me to understand, you know, why these groups think that these vital institutions shouldn't receive something as basic as disaster relief. I mean, there are a couple of things happening here. So you're right. If your activities are 50% or more religious activities for your, for your group, you mm -hmm. don't qualify, which is a, the problem here. Um, FEMA has been very vocal in saying that these religious groups and, and these churches are really their go-to places, not only because they're there, and but they provide the best quality work, which we've seen with other mm -hmm. Catholic institutions, Catholic Relief Services. And when you think about who's actually on the ground, there was a study that showed that 80% of relief is provided by private entities in addition to these religious groups. Mm -hmm. So the government isn't taking care of this. It's your local actors, it's mm -hmm. your churches and your communities. Um, and going to the point on the ACLU and the um, and Americans United for Separation of Church and State, we work with the ACLU on our mm -hmm. prisoner cases, but uh, when it comes into these issues of how the role of religion in society and even issues of sexual morality, they've lost this great idea of what it means to live and let live, mm -hmm. which is a, this very, very American pr principle that allows us to live in a very diverse society in a peaceful way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is you don't get to choose who you defend. You don't get to pick which religions you like and which religions you don't like. Mm -hmm. That undermines equal protection under the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And 
they do great work in other areas, but they are grossly mistaken in how they approach religious liberty. And, and by you, you mean federal, the federal government. Definitely. Right? Yeah. They don't, they don't get to pick who they defend and who they don't. Oh, it's but also, right. yeah, and the ACLU and these advocacy groups who, under the banner, as you said, what is this misunderstanding of religious liberty? How can it be warped? We are undermining who we are as Americans and what we believe under the First Amendment if we're going to pick and choose which religions are allowed to participate and which ones are not which ones we want to defend and which ones we want to see. Mm -hmm. The solution to speech you don't agree with isn't censorship. It's more speech. Mm -hmm. It's more places for us to have these vibrant discussions. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, one of the things that to kind of, you know, start to kind of wind down a little bit is that uh, I'm thinking with this that this isn't the biggest, the, I, this issue about religion being private, kind of a purely private matter, it's not... You know, it's not the main obstacle. I'm not sure if it's the main obstacle religious freedom advocates face, but it's certainly one of the big ones, it seems to me. You know, I think, uh, Beckett, y'all do a good job of uh, um, communications, it seems like to me. So I just, you know, if you have some tips for us, or, you know, what you might share with us of how we can do a better job communicating with the broader public. You know, I mentioned, like, all the misunderstandings surrounding RIFRA. You know, we've got to do a, I think, you know, we got to do a better job communicating what, with the broader public, what these things actually do. And I think even on a personal level, just with our own neighbors, I mean, about the importance of pluralism, of fostering a society in which people of faith are free to be public about their faith. You know, what are some things you might share with us or insights from your work? Um, I would say that the first one is know your faith. Uh, I find the best grounding in what the Catholic Church teaches on religious liberty, but I would say that there are other faiths that have teachings that are just as robust uh, and just as um, tolerant and willing to put on that banner of live and let live, let other people find the way to their their transcendent, mm -hmm. find that journey. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a different way to, to, to get to that point in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to knowing your own faith, knowing other people's faiths. So get to know your neighbor, get to really think about what it is that they believe and have those discussions on why you disagree in a very thoughtful way. And if it gets contentious, take a step back and slow down and maybe come back to the discussion. But understand that deep down, good intentions are had by all. And we all want to see America grow and prosper. That's, that's at everyone's heart, and at least that's what I would like to believe is at everyone's heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, another thing that I think is important to see if you're, if you are the advocating type is to representing your opponents fairly. Definitely. Um, I think that's another, and I think y'all do a good job of that, um, not kind of distorting the issue, because there are tricky issues involved in this sort of stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's not... Not all of these cases are are just so cut and dry. I mean, some of them are. <laughs> but and some of them definitely aren't. Um, right, right. When I think about um, why I would defend someone I deeply disagree with, I have to get over the fact that I deeply disagree right, with them right. first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not so sure that I agree with everyone that we represent, but I agree with their right to be here and to do and to and to be have the same chance at being an American that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, I want to ask you one more question to kind of uh, wrap up uh, about your own spirituality. 
I think that for those of us who do this kind of work, our character is really important. And uh, you strike me as someone who carries this out with great joy. Uh, I've seen that just when I've seen you on uh, television programs. Uh, but even today when you showed up at the office, you know, you're very kind of looking at the statues of the Blessed Mother. And I, mean, I think it's apparent that you carry this kind of work out with a, with a genuine sense of, of joy in your work which is admirable because this is a contentious working in Washington on this particular issue. This is a contentious issue. And uh, so, you know, can you share with us how is it that you, uh, you know, kind of maintain that? How can we, how do you think we can grow in that sense of joy in what we do? Are there practices that you would commend or as a Catholic, are there any particular saints that have accompanied you on the way? Can it, you know, share with us about that. Sure. Well, I, I, I believe in humility, so I know that I don't have all the answers to that. My prayer life is very important to me, so that's where I would start. Um, and a devotion to our Blessed Mother is good for everyone. <laughs> um, I know I have a lot of Jewish friends that love Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, in Where I grew up in Mexico, the mm. Catholic and Jewish community work together for um, the parade that, that crosses the country once a year. And um, she's a devotion to her as obviously we know patroness of the Americas, but mm -hmm. just as someone that is always there for you mm -hmm. um, is, is important in my life. And in terms of the lives of the saints, I think about um, Beckett's namesake mm -hmm. and the martyrdom that he endured for our religious liberty and to set that example. And if he's willing to die for this, I can wake up every day and come to work and advocate with all my strength. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a great example to think about all the people who have given their lives, um, the history of religious freedom in Mexico is particularly bloody. So mm -hmm. if I think mm -hmm. about people who have taken up the, their cross that way, I mm -hmm. think that that encourages me to do the same and, and to be joyful about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come and talk with us. Uh, it's been really great, and I do hope that you will join us again sometime. It's not too far. Uh, just hop on over and come talk to us again sometime. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and this is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.